Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. So today I'm going to do a podcast of a, a talk I'm, I'm giving with, with the best, an AI talk on policing the capital markets with ML, with machine learning. You know, I'll skip the part about who I am because hopefully my podcast listeners know that. But maybe you don't know is I've spent the last, uh, oh, two years looking at the public markets and looking at how they work and looking at the trading activities that go on there. And uh, for at least, you know, at least a year and a half, building a tool to do machine learning at scale on big data, looking for people committing fraud in the public markets. Okay, so why do we care? Nearly all of our economy is valued and priced by the capital markets. This is the fundamental underpinnings of you know, how we derive who's worth what and why Apple stock or Google stock is worth what it is. And more than half, say like three quarters of all trading on the US markets are done by sophisticated, high frequency trading algorithms. And I'm not talking about low latency, that happens too. I'm talking about high frequencies, so a lot of trades, but almost none of it is policed using any sort of ML or machine learning or automated computer activity to police it. Mo nearly all of it is policed manually. You're asking people to look at a computer's activity and, you know, and that's just a recipe for disaster. Basically, the people just cannot keep up with what the computers are doing. Um, and so they can only do a very lightest touch at looking at what the, what the activity is, the highest level summaries. And as a consequence, a whole lot of really bad activity slides under the radar despite the fact that the industry as a whole spends you know, about a billion dollars annually on compliance alone. So, so you know, this is where Norensic came in as a startup. The name comes from forensics in the markets. Um, and the, we read the financial data streams, AKA the stock ticker tapes, um, and the back-end trading logs from the trading companies, so the private trading logs and the public data, and we look for illegal activity. And we're not a law enforcement agency. We build tools, not law enforcement. The tools are used by regulators and by mutual funds and by trading firms and banks and whoever else. And so we don't just look at the New York Stock Exchange ticker tape. We look at ticker tapes from like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange where commodities are, are traded and the New York, New York Mercantile Exchange and the London Exchange and the Hong Kong and the, you know, the, the Japanese and the Taiwanese and so on and so forth. Worldwide, there's probably about a trillion rows of data daily for futures. Um, and, and a big firm might see about a billion rows of data daily, it's about a terabyte. But a more common size for a mid-sized trading firm might be 10 million rows, 10 million trade actions on about 10 gigs of data daily. And so now we're looking for, you know, build some ML to do something here. The goal here is to help somebody understand what is good or bad activity and, and, you know, and find it. So the Dodd-Frank laws that came around declare that the intent to deceive is illegal, but a computer does not declare intent, that requires a judge. Instead, we provide a, a risk result where the risk is the odds of behavior doing be considered illegal. So basically we compare your activities to other activities that have been declared illegal in the past or prosecuted or investigated or whatever. And we're using machine learning to find close matches in the pattern. Once that's found, we hand that off to a compliance officer or to a human to go figure out what to do. So really, you know, I'm gonna drill it down a little more here. Computers don't declare somebody guilty. That's the legal system. And so you have to justify for the entire legal system. You have to explain to everyone involved, the judge, the defense, the prosecution, what it is you're looking at. So there's a requirement to be transparent. So we find stuff and then we show it. And there's a whole lot of work goes into finding it and to showing it. We have to explain the market data sometimes to people who are not very sophisticated or knowledgeable in what the market, how the market works. So we show people what the 
trading firm involved? No. So that's their internal audit logs, their traders' activity over time, and their attempts to trade, and their positions, and buy sell offers, and whatever. We also get the public market data, the, the ticker tape data, the bid ask spread, the volume traded, the canceled orders, and historical trends. And then we filter, filter, filter from billions of rows down to the hundreds that a person can look at. And we have to present data that's the actual, you know, raw ticket audit data because that's hard evidence. That's something you can go to court with. But the data is very messy. There's all kinds of horrible symbology changes. Uh, there's all kinds of time changes. It's too big to be looked at. So we have all these fun visualizations to show trades in real time, slow time, tick by tick time, positions, activities, line by line by line. But in the end, we can drag it right back to the original data and show you exactly where we're getting it from. When I joined Norensic, the the data was originally coming out through a thick client and we moved it to a browser because browsers are everywhere and it let us bring the data out of the data center, the results out of the data center and through a firewall, you know, through VPN, HTML to wherever you need to take it. So you can show it to a CXO or lawyers or judges or whoever just on a browser through a VPN connection. All right, let me talk a little bit about the, the basic technology here. Um, so this is an H2O system based, you know, base system. And the H2O server needs to be close to the raw data, whereas the browser can now be far away. So an H2O server, um, it's, it's, a, it's running a program called SCORE, and SCORE will be told to look at or investigate various logs. Typically, it's done every day on an automated schedule. You'll pick up an audit log of yesterday's trades or after the close of business, and you run the ML on it. Out of the ML comes a, a file of results where you've broken the, the trades up into clusters of activity and scored them. And then that's saved off to the side as a record that you did some sort of compliance activity on everything. Then you bring those records out and then the H2O again now serves a different purpose. It's a web server, integrates the public market data with the internal trading data and the ML results and provides a, a you know, back end for the visualizer to let a compliance officer look at you know, what it is that they think is interesting to look at. So why do we pick H2O? Well, I'm intimately familiar with it. I built the technology. Um, the data sizes are, are very easily within H2O's grasp. 10 to 40 gig data sets on a daily basis fits you know, on a really modest server. Um, you know, a fat server can do a, a quarter terabyte and four of those makes a terabyte pretty easily. So you can handle these very large data sets without any trouble at all. Um, my laptop routinely handles you know, five and six gig data sets while I do the whole ML lifecycle right on the laptop. So it's very straightforward. Direct implementation, direct connections to Python and R, and all of our data science is done in Python. So the, the basic idea here is we take these audit logs, these very messy CSV files. HL is very good at reading a CSV, however grotty it got, and pulls it into a 2D table that's millions of rows long. It's typically not sorted. It has all kinds of missing uh, gross data issues. There's typically uh, some hundred individual ML cleanup steps, data prep steps. That's a major piece of the work is the data prep. Once it's uh, cleaned up, it gets sorted in a variety of sort orders. Generally, there's a time ordering, but sometimes it's by instrument or by trader or by activity or account or whatever. Then we hand it off to Parallel Python. So what is Parallel Python? Well, it's Jython, where the Jython process uh, clusters the big data and then runs the ML logic. So spoofing or abusive messaging or wash trading or whatever. 
um, and provides a score for the cluster. And, and this activity is all done in Python and debugged in Python and you know analyzed in Python by the data science team, but run in parallel using Jython and H2O. The output of these risk scores is written back into a risk file that contains the you know the, the number from 200 to 800 according to how risky the behavior was. So let me back up and, and drill in a little bit more. Reading the, the data in as a giant CSV is a first step for H2O, and that's just we take the H2O black box, go read you know, a terabyte, bam, done, and it sucks it in at you know, whatever your disk bandwidth will go at. Then we look at the data, we decide where it came from. There, we have like 20 different vendors that we have you know, audit log file formats for. Um, it takes us about a week to put a new one in. And we do a vendor-specific ETL. There's all kinds of missing or imputable values. There's a lots of normalization done on exchanges and on products and prices, uh, traders and accounts. There's a lot of uniform mapping for tokens, like buy might be B or lowercase buy or uppercase buy in one file. And it might be, you know, limit might be LMT or K or the digit two, meaning a limit order in another file. All depends. Hundreds of cleanup steps. Okay. Once they're cleaned up, we then go through an H2O sort. Again, black box from our point of view, do a sort, done. We then hand that off to uh, Parallel Python for clustering. And this is a case where we do a, an, an initial break of the data into uh, uniform rectangular chunk sizes. And then within that, each CPU running Jython decides how to break it up into clusters. Um, we decided to stick with the Python because it's good for the data science team, and the API is pretty simple here. It's you know start a cluster, continue a cluster, stop a cluster, um, and it runs in parallel, so it's fast enough on big data. And each CPU gets handed maybe a hundred thousand rows. Um, they build clusters of say a thousand clusters of a hundred rows. That's sort of the average, but they vary widely in size. And and then you know the, the the each CPU has roughly the same amount of work to go do, and then there's some load balancing on the end. And the clusters do vary in size. A wash trade is where two people are swapping a stack back and forth to give the illusion of a volume um, with no money changing hands. Uh, and 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 that's just two rows of data: the buy and the seller on each side. Whereas abusive messaging is where you flood an exchange in an effort to slow it down so you can get something else done somewhere else, right? So you might have. Uh, uh, you know, activity that's two rows to 10,000 rows. Uh, a wash trade is over in a millisecond. A spoofing might take five minutes to build up. Once these clusters are all built, you then turn around and run again more Python. One, one Python execution per cluster on, you know, 100,000 clusters. The Python is running sequentially now uh, within a cluster, but in parallel across clusters. And why does it run sequentially within a cluster? It's because you're building a state machine. Because the market's inherently stateful. Some person A does something, then B reacts to A and does something else, and C reacts to B and does something else, and so on and so forth. These are sequentially in order. So the Python usually builds up some sort of market position over time. There are places in the fills and the adds and the cancels. There, you know, in the case of spoofing, you're looking for like a large position on one side of the market, pressuring it then cancels on one side and reaping fills on the other, but there's a bunch of varieties of that and some other things that go in there. But that's the basic kind of thing they're doing. But they build a state machine, build a bunch of features based on a state machine that are private to that cluster, and then decide that they're gonna do, you know, the AI on top of the machine learning on top of that to decide spoofing or not. So we are running Python now in parallel, and that puts a limit to what you can write to code that can be parallelized. So no global variables in your Python code, no native library callouts unless they're thread safe, um, but local self functions are okay, most generic Python's okay. So the data science team has a pretty free hand in how they write the Python. And at this point, 
Um, in the actual talk, I flipped to a demo, which I'm not going to do on my podcast. Um, and instead say, you know, looking back over it, it was a really fun time. I, I learned a whole lot about how public market works and a lot about putting data science into production. So I'll, I'll wrap up here with some summaries of what it takes to put data science in production. Really, the old acronym that says that, you know, 80% of the work's done in the cleanup and 20% on the, you know, the data science side, that's the case. We spent the bulk of our time both figuring out what the data actually meant as well as being able to uh, clean it up efficiently and then you know constantly improve it. So there was lots and lots of you know activity done around understanding what the data meant, uh, understanding how to write tests for it, putting a lot of testing in place so you could get a continuous evolution because there's always something more to learn about the errors, the kinds of errors that showed up in the data. So as you added tests, you eventually found more and more weird corner cases that you had to let go in the first pass, but in later passes, you came back around and you tightened the test up and something popped out and you went to one of these experts and he looked at it and said, oh yeah, that's because yada, 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 and you learned some new stupid ass cleanup thing you've never heard about. These systems where this data comes from, they were built in like the 80s and 90s. This is like 20, 30 year old tech and it's been glommed on for years and years and years. So they're really complicated and very, very messy systems. There's a lot of work in the cleanup. Once we got past the cleanup stages, the actual data science is relatively straightforward. Um, it, it is a hard problem in the sense that we have way more uh, a clean, correct data, and way more trades are valid and legal and sensible than are illegal. So you have very few uh, you know, negative examples. You have a, a thousand one ratio of positive negative examples and you have to do a very particular kind of uh, machine learning style to be able to detect uh, the negative samples without getting drowned in false positives, right? You have to get you know, your R squared coefficient or, or your, your AUC curve, you have to do some work there. But we did that work. Um, one of the key items here is Every time we brought a cluster forward for investigation by a human, you know, within the company to go score it on a risk score, because we were comparing what we said was risky to, you know, what the ML saying was risky to what a machine, what a human says. Well, we would have to hand it to a human. Who would then score it? It took us a while to reach the point, but it's crucial to capture those scores because that is you building up a supervised data set. Every time a compliance officer looks at a thing and says, it's a low score, it's a high score, or whatever it is, you wanted to capture that notion because that goes into your supervised learning set. Um, and because we, we just didn't have enough, like I said, we didn't have enough samples of the, neg of the bad stuff, the negative stuff. And then finally, just to go to production, there's a lot of junk work, I want to say. It wasn't fun work, but to make it run reliably, run well, has to run every day, has to run day in, day out, back and back and back and back. Um, you have to make it, you know, robust. And, and sometimes the robustness is you have to train the end user on how to reset the system and restart on what it's doing with the data and why. So they have their own legal requirements on backing up data and very specific laws about how the data, including the results of compliance activity, have to be recorded. So they had to understand how the box works. So there's a training lesson we had to learn. We simplified how it worked a lot so that we didn't have to teach so much to the end user. Um, and then, you know, just like baking in transparency, you know, all the way in. And another major uh, thing we, you know, that I at least discovered was um, GUIs, especially to sort of non-technical people, um, they don't really know what they want. And so you don't get a clean spec. It, it, you know, you takes, takes an expert to say that he doesn't like this or he wants that when he sees, but you have to give him something. So there's this continuous 
incremental evolution of the GUI where you put it in front of some people and they look at it and they say, what the hell are you trying to do here or show me whatever? And you clean up a bunch of stuff about transparency and understanding and you go back and they say, oh yeah, da 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 and they screw with it for a little while and they say, that's really clunky. This is horrible. Change this, change that. And you change something, go back and change them back and change them back. And, and it takes a while. You just have to plan on there being lots of round trips with the GUI to get it slick. And when it's done and you show it to somebody, they could reproduce the GUI straightforwardly, and if they're on the technical side, the users understand how it works so they can use it. But getting to that good GUI, that requires a lot of work. Um, it's not an obvious thing that you and I know up front what a compliance officer wants to see in a GUI. They themselves don't really know because they have never had somebody hand them a good GUI that's personalized for you know compliance work. So that was an interesting uh, learning as well. Okay, well, I think I've said everything I needed to say about this. Um, I'm happy to answer questions. You, you're certainly welcome to go see the talk at uh, with the best uh, on the AI side. There's a Cliff Click as a speaker. And you can also run to my blog at www.cliffc.org slash blog. Have a great day and may all your, may all your AI dreams come true. Bye-bye.